What's going on, guys? Thank you for tuning in to Bottom of the Bill this week. We got a very special episode. It's been a cool experience doing this podcast, uh, getting to connect with musicians around the country and even locally, just kind of forming new relationships. Uh, and this is a very special one for us because we have Jeff Sipe on, who is was a drummer for Aquarium Rescue Unit, came up under the Colonel Bruce kind of school of musicians, has played with Phil Esch and Friends, Jazz is Dead, uh, so many, I mean, just his resume goes on forever, and he's been just such an instrumental part of my playing and uh, and just, uh, just a huge influence on, on me, and I, I know Chris as well, so th this episode is very special to, to, to us, for sure. Um, very interesting guy. The way he thinks about music is unparalleled. I mean, the guy is just, he's operating on a different plane, I think. And it's just, it was amazing to pick his brain on all that stuff. I, I want to warn that there is a little bit of a lag with the audio at times. Uh, so when you go into it, just know that you're, there'll be a couple of things that don't sound right or whatever. But overall, I think it sounds great. And uh, we, there's so much great information, just a great conversation in general. So without further ado, here's Jeff Sipe. Enjoy Bottom of the Bill. All right, guys, this episode's brought to you by Best Buds CBD Store. If you're like me, maybe THC isn't always the right high for you. Or maybe the legal status of THC has you a bit hesitant to indulge. So at Best Buds CBD store, they have an array of CBD and Delta 8 THC products. These guys truly care about their service, so everything is meticulously sourced and prepared to deliver a top-notch product and experience. If you head to their website, you'll find all kinds of educational information regarding Delta THC and CBD. Uh, not to mention if you use promo code BOTBPOD, that's B-O-T-B-POD, you'll save 10% on your order. This is not a one-time deal. If you use promo code BOTBPOD, every time you place an order with Best Buds, uh, it will give you 10% off. That's in perpetuity forever. So head over to bestbudscbdstore.com and start saving on all of your CBD and Delta A products. Enjoy, guys. All right, take one and action. <laughs> and action. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Jeff Sipe, man, I can't tell you what an absolute pleasure and honor it is to have you on the podcast. I am such a fan. It's like you're like you are to me one of the greatest of all time, man. Oh, thank you so much. I I, I don't even know what to say about that. You got to get out more often and see more people. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, but um, man, I've uh, I I. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the trio stuff that you do uh, with uh, Mike Seal and forgive me the the bass player's name again. Taylor Lee. Yeah, yeah. I mean that stuff is just it's so I don't know how to describe it. It just it, when, when I first discovered it uh, like maybe eight years ago or so, it just it took me uh, to another place and it really made me it inspired me to like play differently as a guitar player. You know. Wow, fantastic! Yeah, Mike Seal is something else, man. Yeah, man. Um, I I want to uh, kind of just. First off, how are you doing? How have you been? How's how's life? You know, life is rich, and uh, so much has been happening around me. That at, at, at times, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people feel this way, but sometimes I feel like I'm in the eye of the hurricane, and everything is just flying around me. 
sometimes so so fast and so often that I don't have time to absorb it. Right. So I guess that's living. I guess that's, you know, just making the most of it. Yeah, so things are good. I've got a lot of opportunities. I'm playing a lot. And I'm, I'm recording a lot. And uh, I've got a lot of opportunities, so I'm grateful. That's awesome, man. Um, so you're, you're playing and recording a lot. I, I get into this conversation a lot with uh, musicians, and I'm curious about your perspective on it because you do a lot of studio stuff, but you're also, you know, obviously uh, uh, you're, you perform live quite a bit. And I'm, I'm curious, for you, what do you, is there one that you find more rewarding than the other? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's very rewarding when you record something and it turns out pretty good. Then it's documented you know, for forever. So much of the live thing, you know, when you're playing live, uh, well, these days everything's documented because everybody has a camera. Everybody has a, uh, a phone with a camera on it. But I, I think they're two different worlds. Like I really love playing live and the energy of that and the demand to, to do as best you can on the spot, like flip a switch, go and be good. And it's a different kind of thing in the studio where you get a second and a third chance to do some stuff and you have more time to develop things. So compositionally, it's, it's really nice to be able to put something together in the studio and really kind of craft uh, the beginnings of a song and birthing a song like right. that. So both are really rewarding. I'm not sure if, if I would, if I can only do one live or the studio at this time of my life, I'd rather spend the time in the studio developing, composing, and documenting uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, because, gosh, I've been on the road for 35 years, just about, you know, so I've done a lot of that. I'd like to balance it out now and do more recording. Yeah, I totally get that, man. The road's a, a wild lifestyle. There's a, um, when I was on tour, uh, like the, some of the longer tours I've done have been like three months or whatever at a time, and then you get you're exhausted while you're out there and then you can't wait to come home and then like you come home and then there's this phenomena that I experienced where I'm happy to be home but like by day two or day three I'm ready to like get up and go again and my old band leader yeah. used to used to be like hey Anton I'll take you you know if, if you're tired you just hop in the back seat of my van I'll just I'll just take you around the van around the block a couple times and get you right to sleep <laughs> <laughs> and uh <laughs> Um, do do you find that like what like even though you're you're you know you're exhausted and the lifestyle is is hard when you get home uh, you, you feel grateful and and just kind of the sense of relief but do you find yourself getting antsy after like a few days of being home? Yeah, there, especially before the pandemic because yeah, uh, my whole career I said yes to just about everything, and that just kept me playing, that kept me touring, kept me on the road, and the momentum of that. You get used to it, you adjust to it, and it's just the thing you do. You don't even question it anymore. Yeah, you're tired. Yeah, it would be nice to you know, uh, change the scenery a little bit and not have such a heavy workload. But you get into the routine, and it's just a thing. You accept it, and you do it. But then the pandemic happened, and then for two years, there was hardly anything at all. Right. And now re reflecting on the amount of work that I used to do, it was pretty insane. It's not like that anymore because I'm not. I don't have any one touring band that keeps me perpetually on the road. So it feels good to be 
uh, involved with a whole bunch of different things and not really live on the road anymore. Yeah, totally. Do you find yourself, do you, did you find that you were doing, uh, were you able to stay busy during the pandemic with like more studio stuff or were you kind of like most people where there was just this kind of like lull in, in work, you know, maybe staying creative, but not, not like, you know, seeing any kind of financial stability from it, you know? Yeah. My musical world changed from live gigging to, uh, writing a book. And so I put this book together it was, uh, I guess it took about three years and I already had so much of it written uh, on, you know, pieces of paper, just in journals and everything. But I got this app called uh, I Write Music and it was a $10 app that I used. And that was, I was able to take my iPad and sit on the couch for <laughs> about two years composing a uh, lesson and uh, uh, di- uh, working out different rhythm theories putting it together in a book. So that kept me busy for sure. And when I wasn't doing that, I was recording drums for uh, drum tracks for other people. I got myself uh, the Logic Pro uh, program, recording program, and I got a universal audio, real nice interface, so and some really nice microphones too. So I was able to record tracks for myself and other people and that's what kept me busy during the uh, the quiet times of the pandemic. That's awesome. And what about uh? And what's the name of the book that you put out? It's called Rhythm Patterns for Drum Set. And my editor, who is Chris Coffrey, in Toronto, Canada, he's a real good friend. He's another drummer uh, that played with Bruce Hampton when Bruce Hampton would go up to to uh, Canada. He would use Chris, and Chris and I became really good friends. And he mentioned that he he studied to be a, a writer and editor in college, and he was you know while he's doing drumming as well. And I thought, well, hey, maybe maybe you can help me put my stuff together. And so we started working together. He helped me a great deal, just kind of organizing the thing. That's awesome. That's so. Isn't it uh, kind of interesting? Because like, if you were like pre-pandemic. If, if that never really happened and obviously nobody here wishes that that happened or anything, but you, right. you maybe not would like, wouldn't have taken that step and been able to have the experience of, uh, uh I guess you were kind of working on it already, but when the time, when you had that kind of downtime, it really kind of forces you to take another creative, uh, approach to yeah. things and kind of pivot where, like what you're doing. So I mean, do you feel like, like a sense of relief that you were able to kind of sit down and really focus on that project? Yeah, I have something to show for the times when I wasn't gigging. So instead of just, you know, giving up or, or just practicing in a closet forever, it, it was nice to have a concentrated time. That's one of the blessings of having the time off during the pandemic. There's no blessings to the pandemic, but there's blessings to the time that I could afford to focus on this, on just the book. And I have another book that's ready, and that'll be out in a, a few months, later on this year. That one's uh, geared toward all musicians in that it's a study of rhythm, but not geared toward any one instrument. It's just rhythm. You could actually just sing the book, you know, or tap it off, you know. But it's a it's a study on uh, the building blocks of rhythm and how you can ornament them and embellish them to become more musical patterns and then... Uh, 
It also introduces uh, rhythmic phenomena that are just beautiful equations in the world. For example, if you have, uh, uh, there's this kind of law of rhythm that no matter what time si signature you're in, you can play that many dotted eighth notes and that many sixteenth notes, and it works out perfectly. So if you're playing in, say, 4-4, four, four, you can have four dotted eighth notes and four sixteenth notes. If you're playing a 5-4, you can have five dotted eighth notes and five sixteenth notes, and so on and so on. If you're playing a 7, you have seven dotted eighth notes and seven sixteenth notes, and it just works out beautifully. So I wrote out all the permutations uh, based on eighth note uh, displacement, and now that's in that book, and it's a... I couldn't have found that anywhere else. In fact, I was looking for a thesaurus of rhythm, and I couldn't find one online. The closest thing I found to it was uh, musical geometry. And that's a cool book, but it, you, you can't read it linearly and in music notation. It's, it's, uh, it's written in diagrams and circles and shapes within the circles. So, you know, one three, five, seven, you know. I see. And you read it in a circle. And, that, and that's cool, too. It's kind of a new way of looking. But that <clears throat> just, there's some beautiful things out there in the world that exist that are like gifts to us. I found a few of those who put them in the new book. That's, I, I got to check this out, man. I'm stoked to, to as, I'm a, uh, as a guitar player, I think that, um, so much of the like so much of the idea of rhythm gets lost to a lot of people as guitar players you know you, like they get focused on you know melody and harmony and some and rhythmically i feel like with a lot of players it leaves much to be desired and i just think that because there's not enough focus on rhythm as a guitar player and i would i i'm really big on on rhythmic stuff so I, i'd love to check these books out and just kind of see what goes just kind of see how you think about it all because it's very interesting to yeah. me like your your sense of timing is impeccable and like the way you're able to kind of layer rhythms on top of each other it's like, po like polyrhythmic stuff and like you're able to but you do it so seamlessly and i feel like a lot of that is like the dynamic choices that you make too right where it's like when you're when you're playing behind somebody you're having a conversation but like you're not overbearing with with like the, the dynamics, you can get away with more kind of under the the surface. If, if I'm explaining that correctly, no, that's beautiful. And I think in our culture, harmony and melody has been developed more than rhythm. Uh, as exciting as American rhythms are, uh, it's kind of the reverse in India, where their culture has developed rhythm to an amazing level. But it's a uh, it's not a harmonic approach. It's over a drum. So right. you'll have different scales over a drum, but it's not a movement of chord progressions, right. per se. Right. But now, with East meets West on this level, uh, there's some fantastic uh, hybrids that have come along, like John McLaughlin, Shakti. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we're big fans of Shakti for sure. Yeah. And uh, like uh, Trilak Gertu. When he plays with Zawinul or he plays with uh, Bill Evans, the sax player. Yep. Uh, his, yeah, his, his musical approach is fantastic because 
it's the best of both worlds. It's the, the sophistication of the Eastern rhythm and the Western harmony. Right. It's kind of interesting. Um, this, this kind of started to happen, this merging of the East and the West, musically anyway, started, I feel, happening in the late 60s maybe, unless it was happening before that, but really on a, on a, on a global magnitude do we start to see the infusion of Eastern and Western music in the 60s, yeah. you know, with the Beatles, obviously, and bringing it to like the, the pop culture element. And then it's kind of woven its way in throughout, you know, time. But then I feel like the next big, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but the next big uh, iteration of where it was truly effective on a, on a palatable scale, I think, for, for, the, for the average listener was like, you know, Derek Trucks and him yeah. kind of merge, like, you know, taking a lot of those elements of the, of the melody and the rhythm and putting it in, in a way that people could really digest it, but also making it interesting enough for the musicians to truly appreciate what they were doing too, yeah. you know? Yeah, I love what Derek has been doing all of his life, of course. I met him uh, just, I think uh, he was 11 or 12 when I met him. And I had a chance when he was 16 to play in a trio with him and Todd Smalley, the bass player. Yep. As a trio, we traveled the across the country and while we were you know on some downtime in between gigs I was turning him on to Ali Akbar Khan mm -hmm. who plays the Sarod and it's a fretless instrument right just like Derek's instrument you know the slide so he fell in love with that and ended up going to San Rafael and studying with Ali Akbar Khan at his feet wow right yeah and uh, since then, it's really nice because he'll he'll be in the middle of a you know maybe a, a blues song, you know, a rock blues song, and then he'll start his solo, kind of like the ragas, you know, really gentle, maybe just one note. And he takes his time, he starts building it, and it'll hit the seventh or it'll hit the ninth, and it'll tease the tonic. Right. It won't resolve it, but yeah, it'll just kind of tease it, and it's. So much of how the Indian raga style really influenced Derek, I think. Yeah, totally, man. I, what, what I like a lot is you listen to, um, I, uh, man, I, I was just listening. What, what were the tunes uh, on, on, on song lines? Sahib Teribandi? Yeah, and then the other one, um, Maki Madani. Uh, I think yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's a lot of, um, surprisingly, but he, he's using a lot of Lydian tonality as well, or like, uh, or like Lydian dominant. Where he's hitting the, like that sharp eleven, uh, but then and, and like just really laying into that sharp eleven over that droning one, and it's like so yeah. it's so like dissonant. And then he like moves up, you uh you know the seventh that he's playing is a major seventh on the way up, and on the way back down he's he's using the the flat seven, which gives it this really pretty Middle Eastern style yeah um, right. tonality. And I remember you know I re I remember just like listening to that early on. And just thinking, like, holy shit, this guy is like, I mean, next level. He didn't necessarily go down the uh, the traditional jazz approach that a lot of guys do. He he kind of went down the other route, you know, like the like the eastern route, and brought that into his playing. And it's just, it, right. in, in turn, made it such a unique style to not just slide, but just at the guitar as a whole, you know. Yeah, for sure. What was that like? Yeah, be, like having a twelve year old band leader. <laughs> <laughs> he was real quiet. Yeah. He was real quiet. But, but really super focused. He always has been. 
I'm going to see him Saturday. He's coming back. Uh, Tedeschi Trucks Man's coming up to Asheville. So I'm going to get to see him and hang with him a little bit there. Is that where you're, is that where you're uh, based at now, is Asheville? Close to Asheville. I'm in Brevard. Okay. It's only 45 or 15 minutes. Yep. To, yeah. So you were you were in Atlanta for a long time, though, right? 20 years, yeah. 20 years. So I want to talk about, you know, just you getting started in music and your early projects, creative projects, whatever, you know, you're, you're kind of like uh, your kind of trajectory until you're getting to like Aquarium Rescue Unit and all that. Yeah, I was 25 and Boston was a really tough place. So I needed to move. Were you, would you go, I, did you go to Berkeley? I'm sorry, did you go to Berkeley? Yeah, right out of high school at 18, oh. I went up to Berkeley and I did one year there. And during that year, it was so incredible. I played in a band with Steve Vai. He wow. was 17 and I was 18. We had a group called Winter. And Marty Weintraub was the band director and he was an arranger. So we had horns and full rhythm section. And that was wonderful getting to know Steve. I got I got some some great stories. Uh, but uh, so after doing that, I was, uh, I dropped out after the first year because I just wanted to work, you know. But it was really hard to find a gig, a paying gig. So I worked in a bunch of different restaurants and I would practice at night. I had a group called Vermilion Sands. We rehearsed five nights a week. And I think we only did nine gigs a year about, you know, because we were just practicing all the time. Right. I decided that I wanted to try out Atlanta. A good friend of mine, uh, Dan Matraza, keyboard player, he was living in Atlanta and we kept in touch. And I told him how frustrated I was in Boston not being able to make a living playing. And he said, oh man, there's so much opportunity. You get a gig right away if you move to Atlanta. So I went down to visit him. And dur during that two week stay, I had met uh, a band that I ended up playing with, a band called Redline, that was Simon Carter and Vance Taylor on keyboards and Dan Hofflinger on guitar. We played the top 40 seat, uh, circuit. And I stayed busy for, gosh, you know, a solid year. I was playing six nights a week. It was, it was like heaven. Yeah. I was uh, able to do my thing, you know, for the first time and full time. And that's when I met uh, Sonny Emery, great drummer. And he and I became real good friends. We played a lot of uh, duets together. We played a duet together for his senior recital. And I was just fabulous because we wrote a composition that involved some trades and all that stuff. And then and then after that was done, he took it to the next level as a solo and just, just blew everybody's minds. And through Sonny Emery, I, he started getting busy. So I started covering for him at Walter Mitty's Jazz Club in the Highlands um, in Atlanta. And that's where I met Dan Wall, the keyboard player. He was fabulous. He invited me to play a wedding in North Georgia. And he said, it's a just a regular wedding. We'll play smooth jazz, background music. I said, great, fantastic. So I show up to the gig, Dan's there. And, and the bass player walks in. And everybody's setting up. And then Bruce Hampton was the last to arrive. And he was real quiet, you know, hey, how you doing? Great. So we start, and we're playing the first song. 
and it's smooth jazz, you know, so, you know, just grooving right along. And then Dan Wall looks over at Bruce, nods his head, like, take a solo. So Bruce turns all the way up, turns his guitar full blast, and starts playing random notes. And I was, I was shocked. I've never, I never expected a musician to, like, almost, like, sabotage the wedding. <laughs> I looked back over at Dan Wall, and he was laughing his ass off. And he, I looked over at Bruce, and Bruce got his eyes closed, digging in, just playing weirdest shit. And I thought, my first reaction was, how inappropriate the uh, the audacity of that, you know? Yeah. I realized that Dan was trying to harmonize with Bruce and make sense of what Bruce was playing. All the random notes, he was trying to tie it all together, you know? And I realized these guys have a real special relationship, so... I didn't know what to think about that gig. I got paid, went home, and I got a call from Bruce the next day. He said, I want you to come out and play with me at the Harvest Moon. So the next night I went out, I joined him at the Harvest Moon, and there was like 15 people on stage. And the most brilliant local players, it was just incredible. And about the third song into it, I turned to my friend Randy Honey, the guitar player, and I said, I think I found my calling. And he said, yes, I think you have, too. And that was the beginning of Bruce and my relationship that lasted 34 years up until his last gig. And we were together on that gig, too. You were? You were there that night? Yeah. Wow. They asked me to do a short little Zambulan Orchestra finale. So we had everybody on stage. And we had these uh, these posters like in the Zambuland Orchestra, which is another thing I did with my wife and Ricky Keller. We got as many players as possible on stage. And we had three sets of posters. One set of posters was styles, like rock and reggae and punk and whatever. You know, we just went through a whole bunch of genres. The other set of posters were time signatures and, uh, and a set of uh, posters was keys, you know, what keys to play. So the conductor would just grab any, you know, a set of three posters to put together a whole new uh, scenario. So we'd be improving, we'd be jamming, and he'd call up, you know, we're going to go to Key of A, reggae, and then it count us a new tempo. One, two, three, four, bam! You know, we just switch on the dime. And we had as many as 80 players the last year that we did it. We did oh it six God. years in a row. And it grew from 20 players to about 80 players by the time we had played the last show. But yeah, being there with Bruce on the last gig was amazing because ever since he was a teenager in the Hampton Grease Band, the Grease stood for dying on stage. He said, if you're a musician, you know, the ultimate goal is to play until you drop on stage. No shit. And go out that way. And he called it obtaining grease. If you die on stage, you have obtained grease. And it was the Hampton Grease Man. So is he obtained good? grease almost prophetically. Well, prophetically, yes. That's, that's so insane to hear because you hear a lot of stories about that night uh, just on the periphery as we are. And uh, you hear stories about him being the way that he is or was and so prolific 
And there's, you know, this idea that he kind of decided to go that night. Like that was like he made a conscious decision uh, to go. That's kind of what the I guess the um, the legend of that night is for a lot of musicians that, that, that look up to him in that way, you know. Well, I don't think I think he wanted to live. I don't think he wanted to die, but I think he was right. prepared to. I think he was prepared to. Yeah. I think he was. He was in a room of 5,000 people just showing their love and support for him. And his heart couldn't have been any more full. And he had just come off the road from heavy travel and no sleep. Um, he had suffered a heart attack in 96. So his heart was already, you know, weaker than it should have been. So there were on stage, and we're about to close the show. We only have 10 more minutes to go. And he looks at me with a smile on his face like he was an eight-year-old boy having the time of his life, just innocent, pure, and smiling big. It was really beautiful to see. And so he pointed at his, his uh, wrist, you know, like, let's wrap this up. I said, okay. And I look over and catch the eyes of... Everybody on stage trying to grab you know their attention. Like, hey, we're going to end this thing now. And I look back over toward Bruce, but he's on the floor with the same smile. And it confused everybody because people who have played with Bruce before often witnessed him on the floor while he's playing this guitar or singing on the floor. You know, he'd be acting up. You know, performance art and everything. So it was nothing new to see him on the floor, but he wasn't moving. So for the few, first few seconds, we thought, oh, that's just Bruce being Bruce. And then it dawned on us that, uh-oh. So um, four of the guys from the band rushed over and grabbed a limb, and they were taking him to the side stage. And the promoter grabbed the curtain and used, you know, to hide the fact that Bruce was being, you know, dragged backstage. And so I, I went around the curtain, grabbed the microphone, and thanked everybody for coming. And it was a wonderful, beautiful night, a beautiful audience. And now we're going to go check out and see what's happening backstage. So I think a majority of the audience thought it was a prank. It was like just another weird thing that Bruce did. But we, uh, we went to the doctors that night. And after he passed, after they told us that the doctors told us that he passed. We asked, Jared Trust was with me, and a whole bunch of others were with us. And we asked if if we had acted sooner, could we have made a difference? And the doctor said no. He had a massive heart attack, and he, it was lights out. He was dead before he hit the ground. Oh, my God. And we thought, oh, well, did he... We asked, if did he feel any pain, you know? And he... The doctor assured us that he didn't. He said, a heart attack that massive lights out all of a sudden, the brain doesn't feel the pain. You just, you know, just gone. And when I think about all of that, it's, a, it's an amazing life by an amazing human being who was so supportive of me my whole life and gave me so much of myself. And I, I just smile when I think about him and when I think about the way he went. I just have to smile and like, that's an amazing story with an amazing human being. 
Yeah, man, there's there's something, uh, I mean, just the the reach that he had, it seems like, I mean, because, you know, we, we, had, we had Rick Lawler on the podcast last season, and obviously Rick has done a lot of work with him uh, and, yeah. and, and, and you as well. And from the outside looking in, uh, Colonel Bruce, what seemed to be his biggest talent was kind of pulling the best out of people. He was like this kind of like producer in a sense. Uh, but but yeah. Rick but Rick also made a point to say that that Colonel Bruce is also a fantastic musician in his own, in his own right. And uh, I'm curious as to you know after hearing him play on that wedding gig that night and then moving forward with him, what what was it about his his playing ability that drew you to work with him again yeah. in, in the future? Well, I've always been one to kind of really appreciate something bent, twisted, a little off. You know, like Sun Ra, just, you know, I just love it. It's really grounded in incredible uh, roots music. But year after year, you would get a little further out, a little further out. I always appreciated that. So I appreciated that about Bruce. And it wasn't, when he when he played random notes at first, it, he called it transmission. He was transmitting, you know, universal stuff through his instrument. But he didn't know what he was doing. He was just just moving around, you know. And sometimes by magic, he'd cross some changes that just made you think, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. But it's quite by accident. <laughs> and it wasn't until Bobby Lee Rogers got with him and taught him basic blues chords and, and how to work within that realm. That's when he first started playing... Uh, normal guitar okay before that it was just before that it was just what wherever his fingers landed you know it was just how this could be that's amazing yeah but it, so it wasn't the guitar playing that that drew everybody to him and the, the hampton camp it was the freedom that he allowed musicians to explore themselves and he would check us along the way I remember when ARU was first forming, Otiel and Jimmy and I and Bruce were playing, and we were getting our fusion thing on, you know. And he stopped us right in the middle of the song and said, what is this, Berkeley? Yeah. And we all laughed, you know. And then he started going into his alien transmissions, and we just joined him. It was like, ah! We just got weird. Because Accordion Rescue started out as a performance art, band and music supported the antics so it was about half music and half crazy stuff improv oh i didn't know that it's uh, cool and then after a while when we got Otiel on the band and jimmy we started working on tunes and then matt monday came in and then it was uh the music elevated so high the antics were there but the music suddenly was more of the focus than the crazy stuff but the crazy stuff never went away Right. No, I've, I'm, I've, I've dug, you know, deep into, I had my time when I was going through a lot of the, the ARU stuff and yeah, definitely. It's almost like, like Zappa-esque, um, but yeah. like more, uh, more out there. Cause, cause Zappa obviously was very, um, you know, he, all the music was written out and it was very classical influenced yep. and there may have been some improv here and there, but 
Otherwise, it was all very, very highly arranged music. And but there's yeah. a there's a wildness that I would that I would uh, kind of equate to what ARU is doing as well. But then there's just this other level of just um, the unknown that, that you guys presented that um, I think is it's just super creative and I and and I love like like the risks that they were taken, you know. Yeah, we did. We took risks, and everybody then had so much energy. When I met Bruce, he was 34, and there was laser beams shooting out of his eyes. He had so much energy, and that was infectious, you know. And we were all practiceaholics too. I think everybody in the band spent a lot more of their day time practicing than doing anything else and so we got better by leaps and bounds you know and then we get on the road and we're working 300 days a year on the road for years and we we just got better so quickly you know because when you're doing it more often than you're not doing it you've never not warmed up somebody told me if you never put the sticks down you'll never not be warmed up right right i'm curious because i i try and find this balance in my own life where there's, I have like periods of time where I'm practicing more than I'm doing really anything. It's like literally, like you know, and obviously as a musician, there's a lot to keep track of, right? Like you have, you know, you have to, you know, like taxes are paying the ass for for musicians, and there's right. and there's just like the day to day life. You know, you have to like eat and take care of yourself, and you have to you know have a place to stay and all these things. And I'm curious, like. You know, was there a balance that, you know, when did you and how did you find the balance between like becoming a, this yeah. proficient musician, but also this, you know, person who can be somewhat business minded as well and how you handle your finances and just, and just your lifestyle? You know, I, uh, probably everybody's different, but my focus was pretty singular in that I just wanted to play all day. And so it, I practically took a vow of poverty and I moved into a garage in the back. It was a carriage house in the back of um, a house on East Lake Road. So I was close to Little Five Points. It was close to a lot of things. I was close to Hampton in the neighborhood. And my only responsibility was $200 a month in utilities. So uh, I didn't have a phone of my own didn't have a car, didn't have a pet, didn't have a girlfriend. I just lived as cheaply as I could, ate as cheaply as I could, and just woke up and practiced. And then, you know, I had some fun in the day and come back and do a gig. So I was practicing five hours a day and playing three, four hours, sometimes five hours a night. And that was all I was doing. So, but that was, that was a chunk of time that I'm glad I did that. I, I wouldn't have been able to do that in subsequent years. Right. But it was great during that time when I was young enough that I could make those decisions and nobody else was going to be affected by it. Right. Yeah, that's a good point to make because as you get older, you have, you know, dependents and you have like real responsibilities, you know, you start wanting to like, you yeah. know, have a house and, you know, a wife yeah. and, and all the, just a lifestyle. And then at that point, you have to start to compromise the you know some things in order to make those other things that you want work as well you know that's right and my my wife rainbow has always been really understanding of practice time and in fact you know when i'm when i'm not 
up to my game or if she's there have been several times you know in the past years going back quite a few that she would say honey tonight you didn't sound like you were you know as good as you did like you know this other gig or a month ago or something she said you, you got to go out and practice some more <laughs> <laughs> i think she likes her she likes her alone time but she also appreciates that when i get kind of uh frustrated all i need to do is spend a good couple hours practicing and i come back in whistling a tune and I'm, my lightness of being is back so she sends me out to the garage to practice that's know, if i need it that's so funny <laughs> uh is, is she at most of your shows like uh supporting and stuff like that or, or are you mostly when she yeah when she has a girlfriend to come out with then uh she'll come out but she doesn't like to sit in the audience and watch me play anymore. It's like those days are gone. Yeah, I can understand that. Right. Yeah. She'd rather be with a, a friend, you know. Right, right. So, you know, I want to go back to some of the Aquarium Rescue Unit stuff and and just kind of talk about what transpires from there. So you're playing with Colonel Bruce, uh, and then, you know, when did you when did you guys become like an actual unit that was touring and doing the thing? Uh, and then what yeah. happens after that? So I met him, I guess, in 84. So then 80, during 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, during those years up to 88, I was just freelancing, doing as much as I could. And uh, I was working in this top 40 band called Knee Deep. Now, be careful what you name a band. All this stuff comes true. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> that one didn't last too long, but. We were forming the band, and the singer, Sam Guest, he said that there's a couple of brothers that are super talented from Myrtle Beach, and no, Virginia Beach, and that they were looking for a top 40 band or some work. And uh, he mentioned, well, come to Atlanta. You know, we could start a band with, with Jeff and Dan Hofflinger. So we got together, and I met the Burbridge brothers for the first time. They came over to my house. And I invited Vance Taylor, the great keyboard player, and Sonny Emery also to come over. And we just had a great time in the living room getting to know each other for the first time musically. And we just had a blast. And I realized, oh, my God, these guys are, these, these guys can really teach me. Their sense of rhythmic phrasing was just so sophisticated. And their, their single-mindedness, you know, their, their brothers that played together their whole lives. Right. So they can finish each other's uh, musical sentences. And I thought that was just incredible. So I, I kind of took it, uh, I took them to be my musical mentors. And they they really gave me a lot of what I have now in just terms of how to think about rhythm phrasing. It got to be after a while that O'Teal and I would play the exact rhythmic phrase so many times during the night that we had to laugh and make a conscious decision not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was wonderful. So, and then I met Jimmy Herring. I met Jimmy Herring before I met the Burbage Brothers, and I met Jimmy Herring at a Scott Henderson clinic at Guitar Institute before it became Atlantic Institute of Music. And Steve Freeman was the, the head of the, the GIT, and Jimmy Herring and he were really good friends. So Scott Henderson needed a backup, a local rhythm section. So um, 
Randy Hexter and Russ, uh, the bass player, and myself backed up uh, Scott Henderson. I had an incredible time. It was just what a privilege, you know, to play with such a heavy. After the clinic, Jimmy came up and introduced himself. Hey, I'm Jimmy Herring. I play guitar. Would you be interested in, in jamming sometime? And I said, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? And he said, nothing. So we got together that very next day in the same living room. And we just played duets and got to know each other a little bit. So then all this time I've been working with Bruce Hampton and kind of didn't want to do the, the mainstream music anymore. I just wanted to go out with Bruce and explore my own stuff, and develop my own voice. So one day at a, uh, a rehearsal, I, I had a band called Mystificus. We were a garage rehearsal band. We really didn't play anywhere, but we loved to jam. So it was the Burbage Brothers and Charlie Williams on guitar and Jimmy Herrick on guitar. And we just wrote original fusion music music, and had a good time. Well, one, one of these sessions, uh, Otil comes in and he lays his face down. And he goes, man, I'm so tired. I'm 40 scene. I really want to be doing something else. And I, uh, every month I play with Bruce Hampton, and we just do whatever we want. We have a great time. Why don't you come and sit in with us? So Monday night, I take uh, Otil and, and get this giant SVT cabinet in the back of my 69 Nova. And we drive down a little five points. And we pull up and we see Bruce coming toward the car. And we get out and I say, hey, Bruce, I want you to meet O. And before I can say Otil, Bruce looked at him and said, August 24th is your birthday. I was wanted to hear and about this. True. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucking wild. Yeah. I've, I've witnessed him do it a hundred times. It's it's phenomenal. It didn't always work, but when it did, it was just unexplainable, you know? Yeah. So, okay, so uh, that was the introduction to, to O'Teal. And then Jimmy came and watched us, and he was like, yeah, I definitely want to play with you guys. And it took a few Mondays for Jimmy to be invited on the stage. Meanwhile, he's just shaking his leg and he's ready to play and be invited up on stage. And, and finally, Bruce was like, and Jordan goes tonight, Jimmy Herring. And Jimmy took, he was like halfway across the room, but he only took like three steps and leaped on stage. He was <laughs> that eager to play. Yeah. He plugged in and we started playing. All of a sudden, the music just went like this. It, it got raised. Uh, all of a sudden, we were playing on a whole new level. And it was exhilarating. It was really cool. So the core uh, rhythm section of Otil and myself and Jimmy had been established that night. And Matt Muddy followed. And, uh, Jeff Moser followed. And that was about 89. And then by 90, we were on the road. And by 91, Capricorn Records signed us to a two-album deal. So we recorded live at the Georgia Theater, and that was an opening set for Widespread Panic. Widespread Panic was doing a video, and Billy Bob Thornton was the director. So Billy Bob and, and Bruce uh, hit it off, and they made a great friendship. And oh. Billy Bob said, hey, why don't, 
since you're already set up, why don't I just take one song and do a video for you? And so we did Fixin' to Die and recorded that. And it was also being multi-tracked by the record plant Mobile. And that was Johnny Sandlin, the great Johnny Sandlin, the engineer. He was in the mobile truck recording us. And so we got to be friends that way. And that's that's how the first album got to be, most auspiciously. Wow. And that was signed to Capricorn. Talk about and then we just hit the road. Talk about a uh, an affordable way to make a record. <laughs> Capricorn must have loved huh? you guys. <laughs> They were like, yeah, we'll take that. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Um, and then so um, what happens after that? So so then Capricorn signs you for two uh, records. You do the first one's a live record. What's the next one that comes out? Or then you go on the road, and then you guys are touring for how long yeah. before you guys work on the next one? Is the next one a studio record, or is it another live record? It's a studio record. And I think it's only a year and a half after the first album was released that we were in the studio making the next one. Okay. That was called Mirrors of Embarrassment. And that's the same year I met my wife. My wife was living in Raleigh, and her mother and brother ran a club called Easy Street. And it's a, a place that uh, Aquarium Rescue Unit would play, and Derek Trucks also. So my wife met Derek Trucks when he was 11. He was playing through there, and then we followed and she always teases me about that. She, she's known Derek longer than I have. <laughs> but, so we cut Mirrors of Embarrassment album, and Chuck Lavelle came in and played keyboards on that. Very cool. Very cool. It was, it was so great. I mean, uh, the sound of that record is just really nice. It's full and analog and rich. Just just really great recording. Oh, what was the studio experience like with Colonel Bruce and that band? <laughs> that was, that's a good question because Bruce was never prepared. He would, <laughs> he would write down random words on a napkin or a matchbox or, you know, anything that was around the newspaper would just, and he would just write down random words. And most of the time he laid down on his back, just making noises Oh my God! And then, until finally, it was you know his turn to uh, to do some vocal overdubs. <laughs> so nothing was really written, but he had phrases. So he and when you listen back to it, a lot of the tunes don't make any sense at all. They're just phrases and words put together. But he had a his own way of doing it, and it worked. So working with Bruce was like everybody else was was super focused and Bruce was just kind of like the like it was the sandbox and he was a kid just playing the sandbox right right now was there any kind of like I would imagine that must have created some kind of friction or frustration amongst you guys in the band for wanting to like you know figure stuff out and and obviously you're all very focused and and talented musicians i'm sure you were like there's a there, there's an aspect where you're like let's come in prepared know what we're gonna do some improv here and there that, that would imagine the next side of that yeah. or, you know the labels you know they must have had somebody in the room too that that must have been just like counting the pennies <laughs> they were just like what the fuck is happening right now <laughs> <laughs> which reminds me that bruce was assigned to capital i think it was I think it was Capitol Records 
the the Hampton Grease Band uh, album was released, and the head of was it Clive? Clive Davis. I, I think I have. Yeah. Yeah. He recalled the album when he heard it. He was like, "Absolutely not. This is not going to be on, on my label." <laughs> so it already been released, and then he recalled the album. No shit. Wow. It's the second worst album on the label's history. What's the first uh, one? Behind uh, something in South America. It was. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what, but it wasn't American musicians. It wow. was a Mexican thing or something. Uh, <laughs> so working with Bruce was just fantastic. But we realized as a group, if we do want to take it to the next level, we're going to have to write the tunes. We're going to have to organize it. We're going to have to be kind of focusing Bruce and giving him. Our, our job as a band was to put Bruce up on a silver platter and then he would have as much fun as he wanted and then just destroy it all. And then we'd build it back up, put him on a silver platter, and then he would just destroy it again. And that was our thing. What an <laughs> and we would laugh dynamic. because sometimes, you know, you turn the beat and his one was the four or the four was the one. And we'd all look at each other and just bam, just switch on a dime and make him right. So that was our job to make him right. Right. No matter where he was. <laughs> That's not a not a unique thing, I feel like, amongst uh, a backing band and the artists, right? A lot of times, especially in the when you're when you're yeah. in a jam band kind of scenario, um, and your and your vocalist isn't um, a musician in the traditional sense, uh, or doesn't yeah. have the same kind of like training in that sense. Uh, a lot of the yeah. times you're kind of you know, they'll, they'll come in in the middle of a jam or like in the middle of a solo section and like you might yeah. be like you know halfway through the uh the form yeah. and they're just coming in whenever and that's your job as a support role to kind of readjust and yeah. make them correct right well, that's yeah and we talked about that in the band a lot it's really the art of recovery when you're in an improv situation things unpredictably will, will happen and how fast can you recover it and make it a happy accident? Right. So that's an art form in, its, in, in itself. And we got pretty good at it as, it, as uh, relating to Bruce. We could kind of tell, you know, where he was or where he was headed. And we'd just meet him right there. That's awesome. And like, is that something that you guys all collectively learned from previous experiences? Or is that something that you, got, you guys are all figuring out, like, as you were working with him? It, it just needed to happen so much more often with Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's, yeah. That's wild, man. So you guys cut the studio record, and what happens after that? No, we tour until we're burnt, completely burnt. And then Matt Mundy decided he didn't want to have anything to do with the musical business part of it. And for his personal reasons, decided he would back out. So... Bobby Lee Rogers helped us out, and also Matt Slocum came in to help out. Instead of getting another mandolin player, which seems silly because he was one of the best, you know, I would just it wouldn't it wouldn't be so easy finding another mandolin player that was that good and who understood, you know, the role right in this creative man. So about six months after Matt Money quit, then Bruce Hampton quit, and 
his health, he really did need to get off the road. You know, he was chain smoking. His doctor told him he needed to get off the road and stop smoking and change your diet. And so he made an effort to uh, become healthier. And that, that meant, you know, just not being on the road. We had signed to a, uh, we had signed to a manager that wanted to keep us on the road. So he insisted we get somebody right away to place, replace Bruce. So we got Paul Hansen, and he was a great singer. But then all of a sudden, it's a new band. Right. It's new music. It's a different intention. It's no longer a performance art band at all. So as soon as I quit, about a month later, I got a call from Sean Lane. Hell yeah. And we, we had become friends because every time ARU played Memphis and, and uh, Sean Lane was in town, then he would come to sit in with us, and we just loved him. And I think he really loved us, too. So we hit it off. And then uh, he said, well, I'm playing with John Hellborg. We wanted to do a trio with you. We're playing with Kofi Baker right now. Uh, but we want to make a switch. And are you interested? And I said, of course. He said, well, can you drive to Memphis and play at Murphy's, which is a small little Irish bar? And we set up there. We played. We improv the whole night. And it's just wonderful. We really hit it off. Um, Jonas Hellboy started teaching me that night. Started teaching me. And I felt like, oh, my, my prayers have been answered. Once more, I'm in such a creative situation that the sky's the limit. So for a year and a half, we did that. We cut four records. We did six European tours and a whole bunch of uh, work in the United States. And then that burnt out. And I realized that I, you know, my my wife and I wanted to start a family. We wanted to buy a house. We wanted to up our together, and we knew that that trio was not going to pay for that. So I had an opportunity to join Leftover Salmon. My good friend Ty North, the bass player, talked the fellows into giving me a chance, and so we worked together for three and a half years for Leftover Salmon. And during that time, I was able to establish credit, a little bit of a savings, get health insurance. I had my first born, and then I had my second born. And then I realized there's no more upward movement in this band. They're not going to include me in as a full member ever. And the pay cap was there, and, I, and I, there was no merchandise money or anything else coming in. So uh. it was just... A, you know, a weekly thing when I was on the road. And I realized that I could do the same thing locally. I didn't need to be tied to the road. The money wasn't that good. So I decided to take a chance. I left that group and started teaching. And I found out that through local gigs and teaching, I was making just as much money as Leftover Salmon was paying me. And that was a much better situation, coming off the road, being with Rainbow and the kids. And then uh, Susan Tedeschi called, and I did a, I did her band for four years. Her touring schedule was busy, but not nearly as busy as ARU or Leftover Salmon. Uh, both ARU and Leftover Salmon, at the peak of our touring, we were really 300 days a year on the road, That's or 250 insane. days on the road. That's insane. It was crazy. Yeah. And uh, so then... I'm uh, playing with Susan, and then Susan is pregnant with Sophia, 
and wants to take a year off. So I said, okay. Uh, and I started looking for other things to do. My name was put into the hat for uh, the Black Crows. Oh, no I went shit. up to New York. Yeah, and I got the audition. Steve Gorman didn't want to do the uh, re the uh, the world tour re reuniting because they had broken up, and then they were going to get back together and do a world tour. Steve decided he didn't want to do it. So I got the audition. I got the gig, and I, they put me on retainer, and I'm learning the tunes. And then I got a call right before the Atlanta rehearsal, before the big tour, and said, hey, we just found out Steve does want to come back and do the tour, and we want to go with him, and we really appreciate you, you know, learning these tunes, and we're going to keep you on a, a retainer for another six weeks to help you out. Oh, that's nice. So, even, yeah. And so they gave me a, they gave me that, that helped me get into Jazz is Dead. I worked with Jazz is Dead for a while. I want to. I want to just kind of. Uh, I just want to pick your brain about something real quick because I'm very interested in this. If you have, if you have a, a moment about it. Yeah. Yeah. The the different because you're so versatile, you can come come from all these different places musically, and then you go into a scenario with uh, Black Rose, which you did. You didn't go on the road, but you were learning the music. Do you ever find it difficult to um, kind of restrain yourself in those scenarios? Uh, just to play the tune versus like getting experimental and kind of, you know, uh, rhythmically taking it to different places. Well, no, I realized that uh, music serves so many different purposes. And when you serve the song, you serve the song. And right. when you have a chance to, uh, you know, express your own self, you do that. But in that gig, you know, you just play the tunes. I would be playing the same parts that Steve played. It's like, that's what it needed to be. So I didn't have any, you know, any doubts about it or any hesitations about it at all. It, it was kind of a chance for me to study that style and and realize what makes it really work. So for me, it was a challenge. You know, I took it as a challenge. Yeah, definitely. Man. I mean, it's got to be difficult sometimes Like when, you, when you're when you so used to be able to express yourself in different ways to just reserve yourself to that, you know, kind of backbeat, especially with the Black, Black Roses straight up like rock blues stuff, you know, so that's cool that, you're, that you were, not yeah. only did, were you able to kind of do it, but you appreciated the intention behind it and, ser and did, did it service, oh, you know? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have got the gig if I tried to play too much or too differently. Right. So I realized that that's what that is. And I dig that too. I had a chance uh, not too long ago to play with uh, Warren Haynes and the Asheville Symphony. And the core of the rhythm section was Otiel and myself and John Medeski with Greg Osby on saxophone. And we had the Warren's play Warren's set list with charts written for a 50 piece orchestra. Oh my God. And Dom was, was the producer. And so I got to meet him and he was there with his hat and sunglasses and folded arms and a big smile on his face. He was walking around the stage, listening to everybody. He came over to my hi-hat. We finished the song and I asked him, Hey, is there anything I could be doing that, you know, I could be doing differently or, you know, is this okay? And he just said, just keep doing exactly what you're doing. And it gave me so much confidence 
to really go even deeper into serving the song. Because I was thinking, man, this guy's produced the Rolling Stones and everybody. He knows exactly what a groove should be and shouldn't be. Totally. And with his blessing, it was like, all right, I'm on the right track. That's got to be pretty amazing to work with somebody who's got such a background in music that is very much like simple groove oriented music and for them to kind of you know reaffirm what you're doing if if it's not that like they just they just they kind of have the same perspective where it's like yeah what what you're doing is working right now this is perfect it doesn't matter if it's what they're used to in the musical sense it's just the fact that they know like they're listening at that level yeah. and you know they're, it, they they just know intuitively like yeah. what, what what you know you know right yeah i had a chance to work with steve canyon ragers and Larry Campbell was the producer. Larry Campbell and I played together in Phil Lesh's uh, band for two two of the three tours that I did with him, with Phil. And Larry Campbell, he was great. He would listen. He would be in the room with everybody as they're playing and recording. And he's just listening real deep. And the song ends. And there's a minute of silence. And he shakes his head and, he, and he, he'll offer his opinion. And it's some really practical stuff, you know, like I was playing a hi-hat groove, 16th note thing. Chicka, 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 chicka. And he said, you know, that occupies the same sonic spectrum that the steel string guitar does. Why don't you find a different sound source for that rhythm? So I got the brushes out and played the snare. And that lowered, you know, I was playing in a lower part of the spectrum that didn't interfere with the... Uh, the string attack, right? the high-end string attack. So hearing music through other people's ears is such a benefit, and uh, I really value that. I always hear something that I maybe not wouldn't have heard otherwise when I'm listening with somebody. Even if they're not offering an opinion, I'm sitting with somebody and listening to music together and I'm starting to hear the things and I think there's something to that. Yeah, totally. Uh, especially when, when if it's like something where you're like, you want to show them something, right? And like you're trying to really in the moment pick it apart because you want to be able to describe what's happening on multiple levels. So I, I find that for myself a lot. And I had somebody tell me something, a producer when I was much younger, tell me that it's good to listen to a song uh, multiple times and just pick out one part of the song to pay attention to, whether it's the bass, whether it's guitar, the drums, whatever, and just really focus on that one thing the entire time to get an understanding of what the yeah. player's thinking about, you know, not just uh, arrangement-wise and melody-wise or whatever, but sonically as well, you know? Absolutely, yeah, man. I remember a long time ago, I was in high school, and I discovered this book by Aaron Copeland, uh, what to listen for in music, or how to listen to music, what to listen for in music. And he pointed that out. Try listening to one single instrument throughout the composition, and then listen to pairs, you know. For example, now I would listen to how the bass and drums work together, right. how the, the pulses work together. Are they unison? Are they independent? Are they opposite? Are they filling the each other's holes, you know? Exactly. Or, Jeff, man, thanks for uh, taking the time to be with us again this week. How have you been, man? Oh, doing well. Uh, the calendar's getting busier and busier, so I'm reminded uh, spring is is going to be 
you know, it's going to be summer before long and everybody's going to be really busy. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I'm excited for get, that time. Getting ready for all that. Yeah. For sure. Cool, man. Well, I wanted to kind of pick up where we left off last time. Um, we were talking about obviously a lot of the ARU stuff, but then you were talking about uh, leftover salmon and then having got an opportunity with black crows uh, that didn't work out. But uh, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I just want to kind of dive into some of the just overall just kind of the sideman work that you were working uh, in that kind of era and just uh, right. the, the relationships and dynamics of, of, of that. Right, yeah, you know, it was a real fast-moving train. Um, I was lucky to have uh, a few chunks of years with, with uh, several different bands. Um, but after uh, Leftover Salmon, and the Black Crows thing that almost happened, uh, I got a call from Phil Lesh. And so I did three tours with him. The first tour was with Jimmy Herring, who got me the connection with Phil. Uh, and after that, uh, Larry Campbell came in to take Jimmy Herring's place. Um, I also did uh, a few tours with Jazz is Dead with Alfonso Johnson, Jimmy Herring also, and uh, the great Jeff Pivar on guitar after Jimmy left that one. It was really interesting. You know, I've been playing with Jimmy in various different bands throughout my career. Another one was Bobby Lee Rogers, oh, and yeah. Jimmy, and Neil Fountain on bass. And that only lasted a few gigs before Jimmy got the opportunity to play with Widespread Panic. Um, so it's real funny, you know, we've played in so many different bands together, but some of them only very briefly. Yeah, I'm curious as to how your chemistry translated to those different scenarios because it's all such different styles of music, right? I mean, Leftover Salmon's one thing, but then you have Jazz is Dead, which is another thing. And how did your dynamic kind of adapt to each of those things? Well, I think it's, um, you know, I've always appreciated groove my whole life, but I've also really appreciated polyrhythms and, and music that's uh, uh, very syncopated and extremely subdivided so my interests have gone from say little feet you know real pocket kind of stuff right all the way to shakti and zakir hussein and indian music classical music so my interests and my influences are pretty wide and so i just i just employ those where where you know the song or, or the band you know uh I, put, I try to put those elements in, in perspective, you know, bring the right thing to the gig. In other words, right. When I, when I was playing with Derek trucks and Susan Tedeschi, it was all about, you know, just feel good grooves, backbeat, heavy stuff, and just setting up the, the changes. If that can be done well, then anything can be put on top of it. Right. So, so yeah, I just, I try to bring the right thing to the to the gig, whatever is appropriate. So, how how did your kind of relationship with with Jimmy? Do you think that that kind of brought a certain dynamic to the table when you guys were like playing in those different bands? Because obviously your time with ARU, but then it was like having come from that world and then like the, the your styles meshing together and becoming so close. I'm sure creatively and musically. Were you able to kind of bring that dynamic to different bands, uh, like like as a as a as like a unit together? Yeah, you know, basically we are who we are. I am, you know, 
my, my entire vocabulary is, is what I try to use. And same with Jimmy, you know, he, he sounds like he's got his influences. So he plays the way he does. Right. So on any given gig, the idea really, in essence, is to be able to provide Jimmy with um, a real solid and smoldering rhythm track, you know, like drums and bass, you know, if they're really happening uh, behind Jimmy, then he's free to soar and just pull out all of his magic stuff. I think that's what he enjoyed about ARU uh, because myself and O'Teal would get into these grooves and, and it was like a freight train, you know, it was a lot of fun, I think, for, for people to play over. So I, I try to realize that with Jimmy, even in his own band, just buoying him is the idea. Right. Like, get it cooking. Don't get going past him. But if he takes a left, you know, I go left with him kind of thing. And just, you know, support him and bring him back down gently. Like if I'm the wave and he's the surfer, you know, I'm going to give him some swells, give him some fun, you know, and uh, set him back down easy. I love that analogy. Yeah, that's great. It's uh, it, it can be hard, especially you know, because like you play with like a lot of different rhythm sections and stuff as a guitar player, and and there's we were talking about it last night a little bit with a, with another guest. It's like this instinct and this intuition that I think that you develop over the course of learning a language and just like the fluency in that language adds to that instinct and intuition. And there's times where you know, maybe you're playing with somebody that's great at doing one thing, but doesn't necessarily know how to translate it to other things. So the the instinct kind of gets lost or jumbled, I think, in the communication. So people, I think, overlook the importance of having like such a solid foundation that's aware of the options and then knows how to restrain and then push when necessary, you know? And someone like Jimmy, who's so technically advanced as a guitar player, I would imagine you've got to be very conscious of, of of when to kind of let him do his thing versus when you let him or when you support him, Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. You said uh, it's important that a musician know their options. And when you think about it, the options that we do have as musicians playing with each other and supporting each other and accompanying each other are Number one, you could play a unison with that person, play exactly what they're playing. That could be really exciting. The negative to that would be that it maybe thins out the music and sounds a little cheap sometimes. Right. But if it happens by accident, it's magic. You know? Yes. So the, the pro, pros and cons of playing unison. The second option is to play independent so that no matter what the other person is playing or saying, you're going to be saying your thing, and it's like parallel uh road to train tracks right. you know you're going in the same direction but you're on your separate roads now that can uh the positive side of that is that you can by accident play the exact same thing and it's like magic happens uh the negative side of that is that unless you're really paying attention to each other and staying out of each other's way while you're being independent it can sound clumsy yeah um, the third option yeah the third option is to play opposite. So if one person is playing fast, you play slow. If they're playing staccato, you play legato. If they're playing uh, texturally, if they're playing uh, distorted, you play clean. You know, just uh, the opposite approach. If you wait for the holes, 
they'll say something and inevitably they'll take a breath and that's when you say something. Right. So waiting for that uh, opportunity to play opposite is is a nice thing. Uh, kind of, it can balance things out. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the fourth option is just to be quiet and don't play anything and don't say anything. And that's the one that I think a lot of musicians don't uh, employ enough, perhaps, especially when they're young. And so uh, after enough time and consideration and experience in, in using these four different approaches to accompanying someone, um, it, it takes. I think it takes a bit of learning and a little bit of experimenting to be able to, to know when to do it and when not to do it, put the right thing in the right place. And be happy with that. Yeah, totally. I think that overall, what the purpose always should be is to be is to serve the music. And like you said, you know, it's harder for the younger guys uh, when they're first coming up because everybody wants to establish themselves and they want to, you know, they want to they want to get involved in the conversation. They want to participate. They want to do the whole thing. And especially at jam sessions and people are getting started, you can kind of see how people get excited and they want, they they overplay or they're just trying to whatever they're showing off or whatever. But then as you get older, you start to realize the value of, of, you know, of space and, and support and how that speaks volumes to you as a musician, especially to the spectator, especially that spectator is somebody that might have a gig to offer you. So it's like, you know, and you get to a point where it's like, you know, maybe you're up there with a bunch of people that are kind of coming up that don't know anything yet. And then I've had times where I just sit there. I just don't play my instrument at all. I'm just I to take my hands off the guitar and just like there's nowhere for me to be right now. And when that when the space opens up, I will I will figure it out. But until then, I'm just going to kind of lay back and and wait till I hear a contribution where a contribution can be made. You know? Yeah, I think that's noticed as well. Your silence will be noticed and appreciated. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Man, so Chris and I are, are like are like we're kind of geek out on the stuff that you've been doing with John McLaughlin and all that. We're curious about just how this came to fruition, and then just kind of the, the the prep work that goes into a show like this, especially the collaborative stuff that you're doing with Jimmy's band um, at the you know at the end of the night and stuff. So I'm just curious. We're very just interested in how that machine is running. Right. Well, let's see. Uh, we have to start with Shovik. Dada. Shovik is a friend of mine who I met uh, through Jonas Helborg and Sean Lane. We played in his living room when he lived in Raleigh. Actually, he lived in Cary, where he, where he still lives. And he wanted to do a webcast concert out of his living room. He threw a big party. And we he had the trio set up in the living room, and he broadcast it on the World Wide Web. And that's what started uh, Shovik Dada on his... Uh, his journey and now he's managing tour managing and running the record label for John McLaughlin. Oh, wow. Uh, Oz Noy, um, Jimmy Herring, Wayne Krantz. Uh, those are four of his clients and he manages and uh, records, you know, distrib distributes the records, organizes the tours and everything. So Shovik, being a fan of Jimmy and Jimmy being on his label, uh, also introduced him to John McLaughlin and they hit it off and they had a wonderful time and they decided maybe 
it would be a good idea to do like a co-bill or a, not a co-bill, but we would open up for John. Um, and so John was open to that. And I think Shovik kind of put in his ear, you know, it's the 40th anniversary of Mahavishnu Orchestra. Why don't we do an American tour and um, play some of the tunes that have never been toured? Like uh, Eternity's Breath, I don't think it was played live. It was recorded, but it wasn't rec- uh, played live. And so the idea would be that Jimmy Herring and the Invisible Whip, the five-piece band, would open up for John. John, the fourth dimension, four-piece, would play the second set. And then the third set would be the combination of us, all nine of us together, playing the mu- some of the music of Mahavishnu Orchestra. So this was decided probably a year or better, maybe a year and a half in advance. So they booked the tour, agreed to it, and then uh, a set list was sent out. So we're all excited. Oh, oh my God, we're playing Mahavishnu Orchestra. We're doing research and, you know, trying to get it into our hands and into our brains. And it's stuff that we heard all of our lives and maybe played along with it. so it was kind of familiar, the whole approach, the whole sound, and even the tunes were familiar. But for me, I'd never really spent time playing it, you know, as if I was going to play it live. So I had a lot of work to do, you know, buckle down and uh, just practice for hours a day. We had a set list that was pretty decided on. Uh, the song um, Meeting of the Spirits was on the original set list, but then it was taken off for some reason. And so we had a set list, uh, the second set list involved all the tunes except that one. And so we get to the rehearsal uh, three nights before the first show in New York. And we're backstage and we're, there's Indian food catered and it's delicious. And John McLaughlin's telling stories of uh, Miles Davis and Tony Williams and Jocko and just, Fantastic stories talking about you, Srinivas. It's just really compelling and wonderful and kind of surreal to be sitting in the room listening to this god of a, of a musician uh, talk about these these experiences you could only, you know, dream about. Right. And it, it was really, really cool. And then so after after we finished the dinner and talk a little bit, he says, "Okay, now we're going to go out there, and oh yeah, we're going to we're going to put that song back in the the set." And everybody freaks out, and runs for their phones, including me, and tries to get familiar <laughs> with <laughs> with the song that we told we weren't going to play. So oh you know, I God. wasn't practicing that one, and so we're going to start with that one now. And so John McLaughlin says, "Well, we're going to find out if this is going to be fun or if this is going to be a living hell," and. <laughs> of course, he's smiling inside, and I think we're all freaking out. Right. So we all hit the stage, and we're like, you know, warming up, practicing. And he he comes in and plugs in, he counts off the tune, and we play it. We finish it, and he goes, "All right, pretty rough around the edges. Why don't we try this other song?" So we, I forget which song was next on the rehearsal, but we played that one, and we finish it, and he says, he shakes his head. You know, he says, all right, we got some work to do. And uh, so we start the third song. Then he stops us in the middle of the song. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going home, man. 
Oh no! I'm on the next plane out of here. You know, I don't belong and all this stuff. Self doubt. Right. And he stops us. He looks around everybody and he goes, "I just want to thank you all for taking the time to learn my music." And uh, it was just a huge relief. And it was just a fantastic moment. So we finished the rehearsal. We did two more. And uh, I was, uh, so we we were about thir- three songs into the, uh, no, I'm sorry, we were about three dates into our tour, the third the third gig of the tour. We did 26 uh, nights over like six weeks. And so the third gig into it, I'm backstage and we just finished playing and it was so exhilarating, you know. And he comes to me wearing his guitar backstage and he says, man, I'm sorry, I just didn't have it together tonight. And I'm thinking to myself, God, you know, what does this guy ever have anything to apologize for? Yeah. I told him, sir, you sounded great to me. He said, okay, thanks, you know. And then I made a mistake. And one of the, uh, I was playing sevens instead of nines, and I was, so I saw him backstage, I walked up to him after the gig and said, man, sorry, sir, I was, but that I was thinking sevens and I should have been thinking nines. And he looked at me and smiled and said, I was right with you. <laughs> I love that, man. I love that. Yeah. So it, it was a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful fountain of influence all my life. And to be on that gig was uh, a real privilege. Yeah, man. That's uh, I want to go back to the, the rehearsal situation because this has been First off, I can totally relate to his uh, probably the sense of of comfort that he felt going through a couple of tunes and realizing that all you guys had done the homework. Did he send out charts or were you guys just kind of, uh, you know, going through the tunes and learning them that way? No, we went off the albums and there were so many different versions, you know, because they were recorded at one time and then they would play it a lot faster on the gigs in some cases. So which version are we going to go for, you know? Right. And it turns out all the all the tempos on the gig that we played were manageable. They weren't lightning speed. They weren't Olympic. You know, it was just more about bringing those tunes back and playing them. We weren't, we weren't inventing it. You know, it had already been invented. Right, <laughs> right, right. But back to your point, though, it is nice when you show up and people have done their homework. And then it sounds good right away instead of... You know, nobody wants to sit around and wait for you to learn your part at the rehearsal. You should show up knowing some of it. I can't tell you how just, yeah, man, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's so, um, it's, it's so revealing of a, 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 I feel sometimes when you're working with people and they're, and then they show up to the rehearsal and it's just learning to, it's, it's watching them learn the, like their parts or whatever. And you're just like, you know, rehearsals should be going a lot. They should be about us trying to play this as a unit, not watching you fumble through the part because you haven't done the work yet or whatever it might be. But um, I just, I just think it's 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 an interesting point that even at that level, there was a sense of relief because he's obviously worked with guys that you know at, at where the stakes are that high that haven't done the work, and he's felt he's felt that obviously, and. Um, 
and it's just it's wild to me because that that music is so complex and uh there's a lot going on and i i couldn't imagine walking into a scenario like that and not being as prepped as possible uh to avoid any kind of you know uh issues on my end anyways you know yeah with three days scheduled for a, a big tour like that it's it's really about you know finding your chemistry with everybody because you've already you already know the parts it's maybe fine tuning uh, maybe a crescendo here. Maybe bring this this section down a little bit, and this one just you know fire all the way. You're talking about kind of arrangement and uh, uh, approaches. So, but that is different than a, what would be a writing session. If everybody came to to a, a session and a group came together with the intention to write, then obviously you know, you're starting from scratch. Oh, totally. And, and in that way. Group writing session can really help each other, you know. Like uh, that's where you really can get deep into it and treat it as a writing session. Yeah, a hundred percent, man. I love those sessions too. But yeah, there's definitely a big distinction to be made between that and and what rehearsals should be. And I, I also find it kind of wild. I wouldn't have expected that you guys had three days of prep on a rehearsal. I would have expected you guys were doing like you know dress rehearsals two weeks out and you know like the whole the whole deal you guys had three days to 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 get both bands and then and then the last set all like together that's it just the three days yeah that's right yeah wow jimmy herring band uh had rehearsals but we were rehearsing both our stuff and our parts within the the third set of mahavishnu uh material but as far as both bands getting together, yeah, you're right. It was only just three days. How you feel about that, Chris? <laughs> uh, that's that's pretty solid. That's pretty damn good. I would, uh, you know, I it, I would have definitely taken a little more time to sit on that one. Um, yeah, <laughs> a couple, a couple. I mean, just I would, some I would, of those lines, I, man. Woo. Oh, I know. And check it out. Uh, you know, Jason Crosby, the violin player who plays piano as well. He sings, and uh, <laughs> on one of the pieces, he had to sing the parts and play violin and riff this amazing line while he's singing over top of it. It's, it was remarkable, oh and he did God. it. He took the time, and he did it while he was on tour, and he had it ready early on in in the tour. Mm. And so John McLaughlin, uh, he commented, uh, Jason was a VIP. Yeah. <laughs> he did the impossible. He did the impossible. <laughs> yeah, man. And like I um so I was I was lucky enough to catch the Jacksonville show and where I was sitting uh after I took my seat uh Derek Trucks and, and Susan walked right past me and I was oh, yeah. I was kind of sitting there hoping I was like, "Oh, are they going to sit in on the show tonight?" And they just they just sat there and watched. I mean, it's a testament to you know how you know, yeah. I, y'all were as a unit and just wanting to take the night off and come mm-hmm. witness it in person. It was, re- it was really cool. Yeah. If I, if, when I think about my musical family, I've got a lot of cousins and I feel like you and I are now musical cousins. We just met. But when you think about your immediate family, you know, the cats you spent time on the road with and laughed with and cried with, you know, went through births and deaths with, that's the immediate family, and I feel like Susan and Derek and Jimmy and Otiel and uh, you know, like Matt Mundy and uh, Colonel Hampton, 
rest in peace. He was kind of like the godfather. He was <laughs> right, right. The godfather of outness. We were all kind of under him. You know, he was the umbrella. But all of us were just kind of, you know, coming up in that scene with him. Yeah, man, it's amazing to see like that that whole that whole world. I know we touched on it a lot on the la- uh, when we did this last time, but it's just, it's 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 just something that's worth constantly noting the influence that he had and, and and like the musicians that he brought together um i feel like there's i feel like the northeast has what they have you know there's there's like a thing up there and then you have like you know out west obviously la and then you got the san francisco thing and denver's got their thing going on i think colonel bruce really fostered yeah. like the southeast like the atlanta scene and then obviously you know through florida and, and the carolinas and really kind of fostered this this uh, musical family within the jam world anyways down here you know like that he's really kind of like the cause of a lot yeah. of that you know yeah yeah but bef- we were playing just before the 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 term jam band was coined and it kind of described what we were all kind of doing back then just having fun playing and not worrying about how long a song was you know just going going for shapes going for uh vibes and experiences rather than uh cookie cutter songs which are great but the jam world wasn't that the jam world was you know open the middle up and it could be an hour-long jam yeah close it back up again pushing the envelope experimenting it's like i think it's like the essence of artistry in general it's like i think and again something that we talked about on another podcast is just like the, the, the genuine curiosity of possibilities and i think with within the context of music certainly but even within relationships as they relate to you know each other in bands and you know even in friendships and in and in a relation like you know um you know romantic wise as well just what keeps it working is that genuine curiosity and the jam thing the improv really exemplifies that in the musical sense yeah i think those who jam you know they're willing to go on a journey they're they're willing to uh, express their vulnerabilities and they're willing to, you know, back you up when you're excited. It's a real human thing. It goes beyond music. It's a real culture. It's a social network. Or maybe it's a safety net of some kind. Yeah. For, for uh-huh. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, 100%. Man. Yeah, that, that's what's so intriguing about it, I think, is that, you know, yeah, it it just represents so much more than, than the music, and and it's just uh, yeah, it's amazing to see what was cultivated, especially down in the southeast under the umbrella of Colonel Bruce and and really all you guys at this point now, you know. Yeah, that was uh, thirty years ago. So yeah, <laughs> wild. <laughs> um, Chris, uh, we got some bottom line news stuff. We do. There was a uh, a few things floating around. Um, so this one, this one caught my eye. Um, so real quick, Jeff, we yeah. do a segment called Bottom Line News. Uh, it's basically just uh, we yeah. some, some talking points that are uh, happening within the, the music industry right now, and then we just kind of briefly discuss them and you know give our takes on them. So yeah, Chris okay. has probably got a few articles up there. Yeah. Um, so the first one that I saw is a uh, royalty related. Um, Diddy. Uh, is forced to pay Sting five grand um, 
every day for the rest of his life for not uh, essentially asking for permission before sampling his tune and uh, and using it. Uh, five grand a day is the penalty for that one. That's uh, for a tune that he recorded and released in 1997. Seven, yeah, yeah. Oof. Are uh, do you, yeah, are you, are you do you know uh, the song um, that they're talking about, Jeff? What's the title again? It's uh, so he he sampled "Every Breath You Take" by Sting. Oh, oh, "Every Breath You Take," right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he and he uh, and he did it. Uh, the rendition was for uh, for after Biggie Smalls was shot and killed. They they sampled that song and they did their own version of it. And I guess he didn't yeah. get the license, didn't get permission for the licensing or the sampling or whatever. And now he has to pay back <laughs> back royalties like five thousand dollars a day. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, it's. I mean, good that Sting's getting his money, but also that's. That's <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it says on here that he um, Sting admits that he did ask for permission, but not until the track was already out. So. Oh my god! It's just one of it's. You know, there's certain channels in place for a reason. I guess you know you gotta, gotta follow the rules and. <laughs> You know, ask permission; otherwise, you're gonna get slapped. I mean, what's that saying? It's like better to ask for, uh, beg for forgiveness, and ask for permission. I guess, but that's an expensive <laughs> way to, to ask for permission, man. Yeah, five grand a day. Uh, Jeff, have you? Do you have any? Do you have much experience on, like the uh, the yeah. royalty side and having having people sampling yeah. your music and stuff? <laughs> no, no, not, not sampling anything that I do. No, and I haven't ever sampled anybody else either. I, I, my I'm more concerned with kind of wanting to create my own stuff. Right, right. But we do live in America. We do live in a capitalist America. And in the, this country, there's uh, intellectual property and the opportunity to earn income on your creation. But then there's also, since Napster came about, the idea of file sharing and what should be public domain and what should not be public domain. And so the, I guess the best minds got together and decided originally that 75 years should be enough time, one generation. Right. You create something and you live through it and profit off it and you die and then it becomes public domain. But then they decided, well, no, you know, something really important like that, that could really earn some money for generations should be held on for it generations held on to for generations and so then you can renew your copyright after a certain time for 100 years or whatever eventually it becomes public domain but it does allow for people who do create stuff to kind of control it um, but these days it's really hard to because the, the generations that uh, have come up since the jam bands don't know a time uh, previous to the idea of file sharing. My thought is that if you share anything, great, if it's for free, if you're not making money off it. But if you didn't create it, and you're going to take something and make money off somebody else's idea, then you should you know, pay them. And both, it's a win-win situation like that. I wrote, and it was really um, a tune based on one of John's riffs, and it was in a band called The Grease Factor. So we got in touch with John and said, hey, man, 
we have this on a recording and we really want to release it, but it's really your idea. We just took it and, you know, developed it a little bit. And John said, oh, I'm happy to share it. Just make me a co, you know, uh, a co-writer on the thing and do what you want with it. Oh, hell yeah. And I thought that was real civil. I think it's responsible. I think it's respectful. That's, that's the way I would do it. Yeah, there's, it's also like, you know, you could, I'm sure, I'm sure that there was, you know, precautions taken or whatever to, to protect, you know, like contracts or whatever, but it just, it, it just makes it super simple because I would imagine that, um, people can make it very complicated, right. And how the royalties are split and how the ownership works and, and, uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's cool that he was just like, just give me writing credits and we're good. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, trying to ask for forgiveness is pretty expensive. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly what you all just said, you know, so, uh, give them an opportunity to share in, in your, uh, co-creation and usually they'll say, yeah. Right. Right. The, um, yeah, I would imagine that uh, $5,000 a day isn't is barely a drop in the bucket for uh, P. Diddy, but still, that's uh, something, you know, it's going to be on his mind for the rest of his life. <laughs> uh, well, maybe he'll write a song about it and <laughs> he'll earn $5,000 a day. Yeah. That's the new challenge. How creative can you be? Right. <laughs> I love it. Stick to your own creation. That's what I've said. Yeah. <laughs> what else we got, Chris? Um, all right. So uh, it seems AI is the topic of every single thing we do. So why not squeeze it in? What did Gene call it yesterday? The AI corner? Or, uh, he called it AI watch. AI watch. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, AI watch um, day 400. Um, <laughs> so there's an article saying Daft, uh, Daft Punk partially broke up because of the uh, fear of the rise of AI and music. Mm. How do you feel about that? I don't. That seems like I don't. Is that is that what the article says, or is that just is that that just the headline? No, it's it's part of um. So yeah, part of uh, part, you know, there. Uh, let me see the exact quote in here. Um, they're basically saying that we u- their their idea was we use machines to make this electronic music, you know, and we the humans are doing that to make the music and they're basically like saying the machines themselves that we used are now able to do the thing that we're doing and there that was kind of a that is a very brief generalization but they kind of were you know almost respecting that in a sense uh, i'm sure and i'm sure when it says partial factors maybe that was a 5% of it and who knows the other elements but uh they they're claiming that yeah it was a uh, that that was part of the reason is that, that was part of the reason is. for them breaking up yeah yeah i don't know i don't know if that would deter me from uh disbanding a, a wildly successful project there would have to be something happening there on the relationship side interpersonally or creatively that wasn't fulfilling anymore for me to want to walk away from something like that i don't know how do you feel jeff <laughs> oh man well i'm i'm thinking right now you know Using computers and uh, AI for some things could be really, really great. Education, uh, you know, gosh, uh, presenting all the possibilities, permutations, and patterns that exist within certain systems. Right. That'd be fantastic, you know, just to crank that stuff out. And those are research and, uh, you know, like um, 
creating thesauruses, musical thesauruses that you could actually go to and pick out, you know, patterns that you can never dream of, but sound really cool because, you know, it's only a mathematical possibility within a system. Right. That I think that's really, really cool. So for, uh, for education and uh, expanding the world's vocabulary and, and expanding our uh, idea of all that can happen within the system. You know, I think that's the, that's the great stuff about AI, you know, spinning out all that stuff. But we, nobody can match, you know, the local nuances of a human. So I don't think you have anything. If you want your heart to be moved, the human's going to do it. If you want to know what can be done, maybe the computers can tell us what can be done, but then we take that and we emote it. That's the real deal, you know, emotion. Yeah, I I would I would tend to agree with that too. Um, which is kind of why I think, you know, I think if if Daft Punk, if the guys in Daft Punk were 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 talking about AI being a problem, uh, I, there's obviously like the ownership of music that would probably be a conversation. Like, is AI just gonna all, like start to cr- pump out music and then own it? And at what point is it gonna replace humans? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, us as musicians can sit here and have a conversation about the importance of humans in, in music, but you know, the average listener, I don't really think cares that much. You, whoever's like, they're putting on the radio and driving to work or whatever. I don't think that they're like, if, if AI can pump out something that they can sing along to, (laughs) I don't think they give a shit. (laughs) And maybe that's what the concern with Daft Punk. I don't know. Two thoughts. You have to be careful what you name your band. Yeah, <laughs> all that stuff comes true. <laughs> oh boy. Um, Shots fired. <laughs> I don't know. So we all create our own realities, don't we? Totally. And I think, like, when I, if I'm on a um, a massage table, and there's you know the scent of lavender in the air, and then there's music on this bamboo music and crystals you know and wind chimes and stuff that has always to me sounded computer generated that didn't sound human to me at all it sounded so fake you know it's oh so pretentious i mean i could allow myself to kind of relax a little bit to the point i where i'm driven crazy by the music and i'd rather not hear that right i'm trying to relax on the on the table yeah so that you know <laughs> There's a lot of empty, empty music being created, but it's for a purpose. It's not supposed to fill up the head or excite the mind at all. It's supposed to be, you know, what it is. I think music serves so many different purposes that that computers have a role in it as well. Think about the different ways music is enhances our lives. You know, at the movies, you know, a fantastic film score just brings the tears out of us you know makes us laugh if you took the music out of it it wouldn't be so impressive at all right so there's there's a thousand layers of of music and where do you want to be in that thousand layer cake <laughs> you know do you want to be uh, on the jazz level do you want to be on the rock level do you want to be background music level do you want to be folk you know you find your layer and you get in there and uh, you explore that whole world Totally. But it's all valid. It's all a cake, you know. It's just different levels where you want to be at. 
Yeah, for sure. It took me a long time to, to learn that lesson because I was somebody, as I'm sure most musicians were at some point or are at some point in their career, um, you get so caught up in, in what music does for you and what you want it to do for, for the world. Um, and then you start to kind of try to invalidate other things. So you, you, go to like, you can go to a club and just hear... Uh, you know, club bangers all night and, you know, the lyrics don't, there's like really no depth to it. As far as arrangements go, it's just kind of the same thing over and over again. But like you were just saying, uh, for a lot of people, you know, it also depending on the mindset, you, you don't want music to enhance the thing. You want music to maybe dull like the, like the thought process a little bit. You know, maybe you had a crazy day at work or you have things happening in your life that are very intense and maybe going to the club and getting hammered or taking drugs and just, you know, right. mindlessly dancing to four on the floor uh, stuff is what uh, is, is what is what you're wanting to do in that moment, which, you know, we can joke about it. But it, but yeah, I mean, it's still equally as valid. Right. Um, well, that, that's just one layer of the cake. You know, the cake is really, you know, let's say it's a thousand layers thick. It's music. It's. It serves a purpose. So you just got to pick your, your, you know, your area of interest and get into that. Let everybody do their thing. Yeah. yeah it just It's important to know what you don't want. And it's important to know that uh, everything and everybody is valid. Nobody's invalid. So how could anybody's music be invalid? It's just for you or it's not for you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. Um, Chris, we got any other any other bottom line news stuff? Uh, those are the ones that really stuck out at me. Word today, yeah. Um, all right. So, have you guys have you guys heard of Madison Cunningham? Yeah. Uh huh. She's, She's really blowing up on the on the yeah, scene right now. Definitely. Yeah. I started listening to her about uh, maybe a couple years ago, and it's all I can listen to anymore. I find so much depth in it. Her compositions are great. Her lyrics are great. Her delivery is great. Her tone is great. She plays great guitar and sings at the same time and has mastery of both. Like her rhythm and her time is rock solid on the guitar. And then she's free as a bird on top. And um, I've never heard of her. Every time I listen to it, Madison Cunningham. Okay. She's, yeah, she's from California. I think she's in her late twenties or something, but she's got a huge uh, repertoire already recorded, and she's been working with Chris Teeley. Oh hell yeah! And a whole bunch of really just geniuses. I think she's a genius. So uh, that's my new obsession. Yeah, I, I, I was just can't get enough of her songs. I'm gonna have to listen to her stuff. I can't. Yeah, I've never heard of her before. It's wild. I think I saw her on like a scary. If you were to put it on and just yeah. sing along with the melody, you would realize how much intricacy and nuances is, is is able to be in a melody. <clears throat> it seems to me uh, a lot of what I hear on the radio is very simple melody. Sometimes there's no melody. Maybe it's just one word and it's rhythmic. You know, one right. one pitch kind of thing. There's no ups and downs. There's no rainbows. You know, when I think of a, a beautiful melody or an interesting melody is one that arcs up and lets you back down again. There's a series of these rainbows, you know. 
Right. Anyway, that's my new area. So, uh, well, how would you describe the style of music? Is it like a kind of folky? I think she came from folk, California style, Joni Mitchell folk, but she was quick to get some other influences. And she was uh, homeschooled. And I think her father is a guitar playing preacher. So she grew up around music in a Christian church culture and has now gone out into the secular world with all this beautiful, beautiful songs and melodies and, and words. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to check her out. Um, yeah, I'm curious, man, uh, with all the stuff that you work on, um, and, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you have to learn a lot of your time is probably a lot of your music listening time is probably occupied by just having to, you know, learn new music. So aside from, from, uh, Madison, like who, is there like anything else that's exciting you, uh, genre wise or bands that are kind of coming up that you've discovered that you're, that you're kind of geeking out about? Uh, let me see new stuff. My, my son hips me to all kinds of new stuff that I, I wouldn't have really um, known about. He loves like uh, uh, Michael Buble and uh, nice. <laughs> um, Harry Styles. Oh yeah. He likes uh, Tom Tom Jones, which I get a big kick out of. He loves these really strong singers, Celine Dion. And when I listen to his uh, playlist of really strong singers, they're amazing. I mean, they have so much power, it's incredible. So he's been hipping me to some stuff that I normally wouldn't listen to, or I've appreciated in the past, but just kind of like, yeah, that's cool. Right, right. Cool. Is your is your son um, a singer, so musician? That, yeah, he's a singer. He plays a little piano, um, a little bit of drums. He's a Dungeons and Dragons um, leader right now. What do you call him? Grandmaster? What do you? No, he's not a grandmaster. He's the dungeon master. Grandmaster. <laughs> nice. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he turns me on to stuff. There's there's so much out there that it's impossible to keep up with it all. Tell me about it, man. I like Chris right now is usually the uh, the guy that's hipping me to because this dude doesn't seem to ever stop searching. <laughs> and uh, every time I talk to him, he's like, "Hey, have you checked out this person yet? Or this guy released a new record or whatever?" And he's the one keeping my ear to the ground most of the time at this point. Yeah, yeah. If you have a if you have a playlist, post it. I will. I will. Speaking, of, have you checked out the lettuce uh, kind of like remasters of the Count Basie stuff? That's a comedy. No, but I'm sure it's amazing. It's a uh, real Adam Deitch like, is a good. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys are good friends, man. And they used to come check out uh, ARU when they were in high school. Oh no shit! <laughs> wow. Fucking wild. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Those are great guys. Yeah, man. Um, cool. Well, uh, uh, Jeff, we have one last segment that we usually do. It's called Unpopular Opinions. It's uh, usually pretty fun and light. We just go around, state something that's generally unpopular, try and keep politics and religion out of it uh, if possible. Chris, what you got for us today? Um, all right. So I think... Classical music fans have more patience to get to a peak than jam band fans do. Oh, um, jam band fans are kind of yeah. Jam bands fans are usually pretty, pretty insistent that they can like you know ride out a a long wave on the way up. But 
I think there's some classical pieces out there that have just unreal buildups to get to this magnificent peak. I was uh, working a working a sound at a at a, a wind ensemble concert last night, and it was a 30 minute piece. And it, I mean, the dynamics were just so slow on the buildup, but by that last two or three minutes of the piece, like the room was shaking. It was it was unreal, and like, yeah. the the crowd was just. I mean, just sucked into a T and I don't see that at jam band shows. If it, if it like, if it's a long kind of simmer to get to the point, <laughs> those guys mo- might go get a beer. They're not watching every nuance of how they get to the peak. They just want the peak. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. That. I don't look you're real. You're real fans. Sure. But there's a lot of fair weather guys that just want those hard hitting jams. That's true. That's my, that's my take. Check this out though. If you were to swap audiences, Put the jam band in the classical world and put the classical audience in the jam band world. That wouldn't work either. I love yeah. that yeah. because you're right. And and it and this is kind of what was going on in my head as Chris was saying that is that the difference being, you know, the improv versus the composed. And I think that when it's composed, there's an intention happening the entire time that I think can captivate people versus the jam thing where it's like the the, the buildup could just be my, like just noodling trying to find what's going to happen and that can lose people's attention pretty quickly. I also think that the jam band crowd would be much more receptive to the, the 30 minute classical piece than the classical crowd would be to the, to the 30 minute jam. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so too. I think their minds would be blown. You know, when you talk about the pacing of uh, well-composed piece of music i was thinking about carmen the the opera Uh bolero it starts at a whisper and then 30 minutes later it's just raising the roof right (laughs) right (laughs) but it takes a long time to get there totally and that's but it is an interesting point to make but i think the distinction there is the composition versus the improv and then also the, just the swapping of the audience the which is such a great point because, yeah. a, again, like I think the jam band crowd would be much more receptive to the classical music than the cr- classical crowd to the jam band thing, you know? The only point I didn't love that you made was that, that like, composition versus improv. You said the improv guys are just noodling. No, I, I didn't go- say that. So it could be that. Okay, it could be that. But I, I would say they have damn near the same intention on trying to get where they're going. One is just composed beforehand it's i mean like improv is just composition in real time yeah they're still just composing right but but, but like calling it that that's yeah, all right i like you all right you, i think there's an art i think there's an art to improvisation that um when it's thought about it works pretty well jonas helborg and sean lane and myself our ultimate goal was to play night after night and not having to play a song but create spontaneous compositions so that at the end of the night, people will have thought we played a whole bunch of new tunes right? You know that we had developed. So that the way to do that, one of the ways to do it is take it uh, like a raga, where you have different sections of the song for different purposes. The, the intro, the very beginning of the raga, a lot, uh, the a lot, a lot, is no time. It's only kind of, you would call maybe noodling, finding 
different areas of the melody and the scale that sound good. Like you might just play the lower register for a little while. Then you start exploring the middle notes of the scale and just sticking to that. And then you, you know, finally you've reached the top of the scale and you're employing all the notes now in this, in this uh, particular scale. Right. And that takes a while to develop. And then uh, the second section would be the introduction of uh, the first tempo. And it's usually introduced with a very exciting rhythmic figure. So you come from this peaceful place. There's an awakening with this exciting rhythmic figure. Now you're into a groove. So you're grooving. And then throughout the cycle, uh, the, throughout the form, say it's a 16-beat form, at the end of the 16 beats or 16 bars, there will be another um, exciting rhythmic figure such that it uh, introduces you to the beginning of the form again. Like in Western music, we have a harmonic turnaround, maybe a, a two, five, one, and we know to go back to the beginning of the song again. Right. But they would do it with a rhythmic phrase, you know. Right. Um, so then you're in the middle of the group, uh, groove, the first groove, and you want to ramp up the excitement. And so you want to ramp up the tempo a little bit, but in relation to the first tempo. So it won't be just a random shift to a faster tempo. It'll be a, a metric modulation. Right, right. Based on the first, yeah, based on the first pulse. You subdivide the pulse to whatever grouping and then make that the new time. Exactly. I love that. Feel. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you would do that a third time to get it cooking, you know, and everybody's just blistering and it's amazing. And then for the finale, there's uh, a rhythmic figure performed three times generally. And the last note of the third phrase is the one. So the beginning is the end and the end is the beginning. And it's just a beautiful way to, to improvise. And it really worked for us. Um, Another way is to think of a t typical AABA form. And so you're playing some intro, and then it's decided, boom, somebody takes responsibility and plays a melody. And you play that melody again, and then you vary it, do something completely different. But you try to remember what you did, what you started with, and you come back to it. And then all of a sudden, you've got a form, you've got a song. People are convinced you've wrote it before you got there but you just did it on the spot right so you can bookend if you bookend an improv and end it like you began it then all of a sudden you have like a form and people go okay that's a, that's a thing right yeah I, I love that 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 concept of the, of the raga thing too as well it's it's like you can really take it to some wildly experimental places especially if you're playing with musicians that can understand how to speed up or slow down a tempo based on subdividing the previous quarter note or whatever it might be right so it's like you know making what maybe if you establish a dotted quarter kind of feel at, uh beforehand uh then the next that section could be that becomes a quarter note or something right or or whatever yeah, exactly. you know? yeah. yeah. so I, exactly I, that's right that's right i love that kind of uh that, that kind of thinking it's also used in, in, in like a lot of prog rock stuff too where that where uh so drummer uh, Gavin yeah. Harrison, are you familiar with him? Yeah, he's yeah, he's amazing. Uh, talks about rhythmic illusions and all that, and I, I love that those concepts. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna literally take 
that segment of the conversation and just re repeat that in my head <laughs> like while I, at every jam that I do just to try and like lock it in there. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. And I think if you share that with your bandmates and you decide you want to do a like total spontaneous thing and see what happens. Right. Those simple guidelines will create something and you'll have something from it if you if you employ that idea of taking your time in the beginning, give it a medium groove, ramp it up a little bit, ramp it up the third time. And it doesn't necessarily have to move uh, from, it doesn't have to change tempo. You can ramp up the excitement harmonically as well. Right. You know, simple movements of a half step, every chorus going up a, a half step is very exciting too. And right. <laughs> it's yeah. so used, it might be overused. But So you can ramp up the excitement harmonically uh, as well as rhythmically or both. Yeah, and dynamically as well, right? I mean, just raising volume can can increase energy and, and all that stuff. So there's a lot that can but be But check done. this out. Also, if you decrease volume carefully, if you decrescendo, you can also bring a, a crowd in. Right. Start leaning forward until you finally hit, like, you could hear a pin drop. And that's exciting, too. That's a different kind of energy, but... Um, it's not to be forgotten. No, of course. Yeah, but yeah, totally. I love that. Jeff, you got any unpopular opinions? Unpopular opinions? <laughs> um, no, maybe you could bait me. I don't know. Okay. What do I think about this or that? Okay, that's good. That's good. Uh, let's see. What do you think about... Musicians that <laughs> use iPads on the gig <laughs> to sing songs or to, or to, uh, I'm not talking about classical music or even jazz where you're reading charts for something because you got a last minute call, whatever it might be. I'm talking about people that play the same gigs every day that are on their iPads using it to sing the same songs or play the same stuff that they're playing day in and day out. What do you think about that? It's, it might be a crutch. I know that um, I had an experience. <laughs> I was I was playing with Warren Haynes, and we were playing with various symphonies around the nation. It was part of the Jerry Garcia Symphonic Celebration. So I'm the drummer. We got 50 people behind me, behind the plexiglass, and the conductor. And I've got these charts that I asked for, and I asked for like everybody's part. So I got a master chart, and then. I decided, oh, shit, that's, that's too much to keep track of. I'll just get, you know, the seven-page version, you know, the 32-page version, because i got to play and flip charts and stuff. Right. Know? And then it occurred to me that all these tunes are really simple in terms of form. I don't, I don't have to read what the oboe part's playing. You know, as fascinating as that was to me, I could write out a very simple chart for myself. And so the last few gigs that I've been doing with him, I don't have the giant book that everybody has. I just have a one-page thing. I can flip it in my book, and it? One song per page. And I can see the form. You know, I see the intro, verse one, verse two, chorus, solo, bridge, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, totally. How it ends, and I can, uh, like a short, like cliff notes, right? And I think that's really helpful when you're responsible for a large orchestra and, and keeping everybody in line. You, you know, the drummer is pretty much the conductor, you know, 
that situation. In a pops orchestra, the conductor really follows the drummer, and they have to be working together. So there's a time and place for all that. When you're talking about like a local scene, where cats aren't really national players necessarily, not road people, but play locally and regionally, um, it it can be you know like a localitis, you know, where you're not. You don't take it too seriously. Right. You're only playing in the pub, uh, you know, on Mondays or something. And it's not your life and you got a day job and you only got so much time to put into it, but you can't not do it, you know, for your soul. I think whatever gets you through the gig's fine. Yeah. I don't like to be on the page personally. And I and I do like to play with players who who are able to get off of the page because then the music sounds better. Totally. Totally. Yeah, Chris and I go back and forth on this. And I'm not even like judging what Chris does because Chris is plays with everybody all the time and he's just like you know gotta do what you gotta do type thing but i've seen like local especially acoustic uh you know singers and stuff around town that just have their ipad up and they're, they're just reading the lyrics off the thing it's just like i know you played yeah. this this is probably your second gig of the, the gig of the day i know you played this song earlier and you played it last night and you're playing it tomorrow yeah. why are you still reading the fucking lyrics yeah. off the ipad you know <laughs> little things like that well, bother me. i know it's challenging I think for me it would be really challenging, more challenging to remember lyrics than my musical part because there's just that many more bits of information. Totally. And I know like all the best, all the best have teleprompters. Even though they've been singing it their whole life, you see just about every professional show and there's teleprompters there. They don't want to fuck up. They don't want to mess up. Excuse my language. No, you They want to, they want to, uh, they want to be dead on, spot on, and that backup is like really, that's a good thing. Yeah, especially <laughs> when the stakes are so high, you got people paying a hundred dollars for tickets, you know, um, and then yeah, the, you know, yeah. five hundred thousand dollar production or whatever, you know, it's like yeah, then the stakes are higher. You want to make sure it's as, as close. Yeah, to have you ever as seen? Have you ever seen um, Ella Fitzgerald and in Berlin, nineteen fifty nine, I think. 58 or 59 and she's there and they're swinging their asses off and they're playing so great and she's improvising and she's improvising because she's forgotten the words and she admits this to the German audience and she's singing along I forgot these words I don't know what I'm saying <laughs> and she just goes on and goes on and goes on and makes it a thing and it's beautiful and the audience loves her for it and she's brilliant uh, in the moment, even though she's forgotten the lyrics, she made something out of it. And it's one of my favorite things she's ever done. And, and it was like, <laughs> it was all kind of a inspired because she can't stop the show. Right. You know, because you forgot a, a lyric, you know, the show must go on. She was brilliant doing it. I think I'm, forget, I'm forgiving of people who need a little help. I need a little help sometimes too, so I'll write out a little thing. Like uh, there'll be a set list given to me, yeah. And all the titles don't make any sense. You know, as soon as I hear the song, I go, "Oh yeah, that's what that is." But the song is still new to me, so the titles sometimes I can't hear it just by looking at a piece of paper. So I'd make my cheat sheet like, "Okay, this is so many BPMs. It's uh, in the style of rock, and it's a sixteenth note groove." And I just put little notes that I understand. Yeah. So I'm on the game. I look down by my hi hat and I go, "Okay." I know what to do, even though I don't have the song in my head. 
you know, they'll count it off. And in the first two or three notes, I know exactly what it is, but it sure helps to have a little help along the way. Totally. Yeah, for sure. I, I, and there's been times where I've had to use charts and stuff as well, especially if I've, I've done, you know, not many, but a few jazz gigs. Um, and I'm not uh, a, a jazz guy. I can play it, but I need charts. I don't have the standards and, you know, just internalized. Um, so I've, yeah. I've, I've like, you know, written out charts or like, you know, printed out charts and I'll have those with me on those kinds of gigs. Um, but do you use the real book? Um, I need do you to use like a real book. I need to get one. I've tried, uh, like the iReal, uh, app that yeah. has, yeah. and that has d steered me more, has steered me wrong more times than not. So I've, uh, <laughs> I've like started tunes in like wild keys or like, Ghana changes that are just not happening and I'm like okay this is not what these guys are playing so <laughs> not the legit versions <laughs> right yeah so uh yeah I try to stay away from that I'm I trust my ear more than I trust other people's charting a lot of the time so uh or or if, if it's a, a tune that's pretty you know on the nose something like all of me or something then I know there's pretty you know tell me what key it is and we can we can go from there but there's some tunes that are a little bit more in depth that I'd rather just take the time to listen to and chart it out myself, you know? Yeah. Um, gotcha. Uh, all right. So I got, I got an unpopular opinion this week. That's very, very non-controversial, but I think that it, it is kind of people hate it. Uh, for me, it's kind of therapeutic. I like to untie very complicated knots. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you guys Man, save that one for that, a second. You know, <laughs> that's it's, there's a use for that. Totally. Um, yeah. Do you you have to find the right community of, of people that enjoy that too. Yeah. <laughs> Just like the, the the complicated not community. <laughs> I think you have. What yeah, you, yeah. I like having weekly meetings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you're cut out to be a sound engineer. Oh no, think, not that. <laughs> well, that's pretty much all my gig is is untying cables from the last gig. So yeah, well, you're good to go. So it's like for me, if if someone's got like a necklace that's all tangled or like a, a shoelace that's gone wrong, uh, a yo-yo that gets all wrapped mm -hmm. up uh, for all the yo-yoing that I yeah. do, um, I like to sit there and just focus on a menial task for a little while. It's therapeutic and. It, it, you know, are you a Pisces or a Virgo? Uh, I am a Cancer Leo cusp. Well, there, yeah, I'm not not as good as Bruce Hampton was. Yeah. With, with all that information you just gave, he would be able to give, tell you your birthday right up, right to the day. That's so wild to me. I wish I could have experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> I experienced it hundreds of times. Oh my god. Um. So, right. uh, you guys like uh, knots or what? <laughs> I'm not particularly fond. <laughs> Get it? Right. <laughs> I like Velcro, I think. Yeah, it's pretty. If I had to do it all over again, if Velcro was around in the early 60s, I probably would have been like, yeah, that's the way to go. That's, let's just, uh, whatever is taking me away from focusing on the thing that I want to be focusing on, let's just eliminate that. So Velcro will eliminate the need to tie knots or anything like that. <laughs> I get I get the same way with a lot of things. There's something about there's something to me therapeutic about the the knot thing. I don't know what it is. Everyone's got little weird ticks like that. I feel like, and mine is just the knots. I don't know. I don't know why I like them. It's just it's yeah. It's like 
it's, it's kind of like a, it's a puzzle, you know. Exactly that, yeah. Do you ever just like throw a rope in a dryer just to like see what it'll? You Man, know, that's a different color ropes. Different yeah, color ropes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've not done that, but that sounds like a fun. That sounds like a fun little Saturday. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Next time you're not on a gig. Next time you don't want to take one of those late night ah, weekend gigs. Right. You can just throw a <laughs> knot in a dryer and uh, see what it makes for you. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Jeff, man, it's been a pleasure having you on You're the podcast. The gig, but you would oh, all right. Thanks. No, it's, man, not, it's good not, to be a part of it. What were you about? I want to hear what you were about, about to say. <laughs> it was just stupid. It was, uh, <laughs> for those times that you're sitting in a place that you would rather not. <laughs> this is where we no, need no, you. That, 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 that wasn't. That wasn't as good as I had before. Now I lost it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you have your best effort, bro. Um, <laughs> I, hey, we, we appreciate you being on here, man. We are such fans. You've been such an influence on both of us throughout our entire careers. So um, thank, you. thank you for your contribution to music and just for your contribution of time to sit here and talk with us. We, it's greatly appreciated, man. Hey, you're welcome. All right, cousin. Yeah, I'll talk cousin. to you later. All right, bro. Have a good one. <laughs> See ya. Bye.